Well, hello friends, here we are, another episode of the Robcast, and uh, this, this episode, uh, this interview, man, we went some places, you know what I'm saying? This, uh, this fella, Caleb Wild, he, he's a funeral director, and I had seen his book come out, it's called Confessions of a Funeral Director, and I was instantly like, now that would be interesting. And when I read the book, um, it, it was very, very profound and gave me so much to think about. And I immediately thought, my Robcast friends would love to meet this guy. So um, before uh, I play that interview for you, a couple things going on, because we always have stuff cooking, right? Um First off, for those of you who give people presents around this time of year, or you start now thinking about what you're going to give people for presents, you know those types? You know them? You've heard of them? <laughs> uh, for those of you who have somebody who you're like, I have no idea what to get this person, may I suggest millones cojones? <laughs> uh, the whole last episode was about this, but uh, we just did a limited run of hardcover versions of my first novel, which is called Millones Cajones. And uh, I wanted a novel, but that felt kind of like a coffee table book in your hands. And I'm so pleased with how it turned out. Um, I'm also so, it makes me laugh so hard. The book and the title of the book is all an intentional mistranslation in Spanish because there's cojones and cajones. And what I love is the people who have been letting me know that I got the spellings wrong and that I'm confused when that's the running joke of the book. So people who haven't read the book see the book on Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and then want me to know that I didn't get the Spanish right when that's the thing that pushes this guy over the edge in the book who wrote a book called Milones Cajones. So people literally haven't read the book, but then correct me, which is literally a case of judging a book by its cover. Do you see why this is so funny to me? <laughs> oh my word, that is the joke that keeps on giving. So um, the novel's available at robbell.com and there's a few copies. Uh, it's just a limited run, so there's a few copies left. And then... Um, we announced recently dates for next year's tour. It's the Holy Shift Tour. And seriously, I am so excited for you to see this tour. Um, and I've never had an opening guest, but Pete Rollins is going to come out as the opener. So um, we're doing the first leg, I think, is 20 cities. Those dates are now up at robbell.com. And right away, it starts pretty soon in January with... Phoenix, Tucson, San Diego, Santa Barbara. And then from there, we'll go to Texas. We'll go to East Coast. We'll go to Seattle, Portland. We'll go to uh, Chicago, Milwaukee. We'll be all over the place. Um, so the first leg of dates for that tour um, is up now, and all that's at robbell.com. Oh, and then the band Joseph, who you heard a couple of episodes ago, um, they agreed to do my Christmas show at Largo with me. So they're going to sing and I'm going to do my annual Christmas show at Largo. So if you're in the Los Angeles area, December 19th, would totally love to see you there. So there's a few things that are going on, but now may I introduce to you Caleb Wild. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast 
This episode, I have with me Caleb Wilde in the back house, all the way from Pennsylvania? Close to Lancaster County. Yeah. So, 45 minutes, you say? An hour outside of Philadelphia? Yeah, an hour uh, west from Philly. Okay, small town? How big is this town in, that you, you talk about in this yeah, book here? It's, uh, it's about 4,000 people. Uh, so, we have... Uh, yeah, 5,000. It, it's in between. I'm not really sure, but last okay. I, I think it was 4,000. Yeah. My friends... Caleb Wilde has written a book that I was telling you, I don't even know, like, dude, your book is good, is not even, he's written a book, Caleb is a funeral director, and the book is called Confessions of a Funeral Director. Actually, when I first saw the title and heard about the book, I was like, I, I know that this book is going to take me places. <laughs> because I started out as a pastor yes. in a previous life, and I'm the pastor in a bunch of these stories in your book, <laughs> where you're in the midst of the thing. Yeah. And I was always like, whenever it was most difficult, when I was in the middle of the most dicey, overwhelming situations, I would always see the funeral directors and think, oh, this is nothing compared to what they have to do. So now I get to meet a real-life funeral director. <laughs> I mean, I've met a bunch of them, but I get to ask you all the questions I've always wanted to ask. Sure. This book, um, I think my people, uh, it's, oh my word, there's so much. So let's start with, as a funeral director, what's a normal day like? Because at some level, not to be crude about it, like someone's going to die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a fire, like a firehouse, and at some point the bell's going to ring, and there's going to be sure, a fire. You know what sure. I mean? I picked that up in the book a bit. Yeah. You're sort of waiting, and then you're in. That's right. Yeah. So we, uh, I kind of categorize it as like a ministry of presence. We're, we're there. We're just always there. Uh, our specific funeral home is a smaller funeral home. Uh, it's a sixth-generation funeral home. I'm, I'm the sixth generation. And that means that we don't always have shifts. So I'm on call 24-7. And uh, if there is a death call in the middle of the night, I get up and I put my suit on. I uh, meander over to the funeral home and I pull out the hearse and, or pickup wagon and go pick up uh, the deceased. How many, a black suit? Yeah, well, I dress down if it's in the middle of the night. Uh, so I, I keep it a little more cash. I got the khakis and uh, the uh, sport coat. But otherwise, black suit. A lot of the stories that you tell in the book are about the drive to the home where yeah. there's going to be a dead body. Yeah. And you give us this... I mean, you, almost, you describe it like a pregame, like a nerves. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're going to find. Yeah, I've, I've often said we're both cultural anthropologists and imperialists. You know, we're, we're coming into a culture that's been created almost instantaneously by death. And we have to walk in and almost feel our way around in the darkness of it all. And then we become the imperialist by taking societal values of what death is supposed to look like and, and applying them to the, the, the circumstance. But yeah, I do. I, um, every time I go in, it's almost like a meditative practice for me where I try to put myself in a position as a listener and as somebody who is is able to feel what's going on and respond emotively. Um, and uh, 
So the drive is important to get to that place. You tell this story about a 6 a.m. drive and you arrive there and you don't, and a, a small girl has died. Yes. But you don't know where she, the, the living room's filled with relatives, mm-hmm. but you can't find, you're trying to figure out where the, where the girl is who's died. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that hospice allows for these wonderful spaces at the end of life. And uh, we don't always know walking into a house where they've set up their bed. So sometimes it's in the back room. Often it's in the living room. They take the living space and make it a dying space, which I think is a beautiful thing. But we walked in and we didn't see the bed. Uh, we didn't see the deceased. And it, uh, it took a little bit to develop as uh, people told us Sarah's story, Sarah was the name of the girl uh, until we, we found her. And then you find her, and she's in the arms of her mother, right? Yeah, just a frail little body, uh, cancer. And, um, and the whole time the mother has been holding her dead daughter in her arms, and you're assuming the daughter was asleep. We're assuming it's another child. It didn't look like a six-year-old uh, so we just assumed that whatever it was was sleeping in her arms, uh, not realizing, as we eventually would, that it was Sarah. Okay, you do this... It's interesting to me in the book how you tell us these stories about Sarah, you tell us stories about the, what I want to ask you about, the family that had the shrine yes. at the table. Yeah. You tell us these details, these particulars, and then you move into these profound insights about the nature of life and death. And as I was going through the book, I was like, I never know what's coming next. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. But you do this, you do this bit about we fear death, page seven, because we don't know it, we don't see it, and we don't touch it. And what we don't know, we've painted in broad strokes of darkness and negativity. The death negative narrative wouldn't be so strong if we only had the ability to see, touch, and hold our dying and our dead. Yeah. Yeah, we, unfortunately, there's very few spaces where we, where we can do that. Uh, it's partially my fault, the, the funeral industry's fault. Yeah, you uh, mentioned that. Yeah. Will you say uh, more about that? Yeah, so... The funeral industry has done well to professionalize death care, which, and by doing so, it's made the rest of us amateurs. We've assumed, I suppose, that death is too scary, too large, too intimidating for everyone else, and it's our job to take care of it. And it's not uh, too large, and it's not too scary. But we wouldn't know that because we've been relegated, the rest of us, that is, uh, to amateurs. Uh, But uh, it's something that I think needs to to change. If we're to grow closer to our own mortality and if we're to grow closer to our dead and our dying and allow them back into our spaces, uh, we need to take back um, some of those things. Um, I I often say to families when I go to their house, they they always seem like 
they, they feel like they have to clear the room. The funeral director's here. We have to clear the room where the deceased is, is at. Uh, and I always say that you've loved them up to this point. Why stop? And then I invite them to, to help, you know, to... Oh, the one story where you asked the wife, would you like to dress your husband? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and then they all like, it's like they, they come to life. Yeah, we've, we've closed off uh, this river of affection and love. And for some reason, we think that stops at death. But I think uh, if we can find ways to open that dam and allow the affection that carries on past death, if we can allow that to flow, I think we'll find that our grief isn't so stunted and so pent up. Yes. Now, you touch on it here and there in the book. You've been in a lot of spaces where the person has just passed on. You, you tell about handling dead bodies as a routine part of your work. What do you... I mean, people get into the pre-existence of the soul, the presence of those who have passed on that is yeah. still with us. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine there are stories that aren't in this book of things you have experienced. Yeah. That you're like, if I put this in the book, <laughs> I'm gonna, they're going to think I'm crazy. Yeah. Right? You're smiling mm. now. Okay, yeah, now it's I'm on true. <laughs> it's true. In the yeah. book, I'm like, there's no way he hasn't seen things that, that cannot be explained involving soul, spirit, presence, death. Yeah. Other life, past life, afterlife, dimensions. Um. Yeah, stories that sound absurd. Uh, you know, visions and um, things that I, we too easily write off. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. But yeah, there's, uh, the visions are quite a regular thing. Where the deceased has visions and of course, you know, we... We look at that and we say, well, the, the body produces uh, chemicals at the end of life that can cause some... Uh, uh, like hallucinations. Hallucinations, yes. Deceased meaning the, the one about to die. Uh, um, yes, the one dying, about to die. Uh, visions on their part of past relatives, of God, of beings that are generous and welcoming that they call angels and... You, you listen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of liminal spaces in death where it exists in the threshold. And we like to put things in categories of either or, of yes or no. And so we, we hear those stories and I hear those stories. And we think automatically it is either wrong or right. But there is this liminal space where it's both. And so... So I listen and I hear what they're saying, um, never wanting to put it into the binary categories that I want to put it in, but allowing the liminal space and allowing the story to exist there. Um, it's not always easy, but yeah, I, I think that's, it's a part of death. So this, so common wisdom is a person's dead or they're alive. They're either here or they're... Yes. Whatever might be or might not be next. Nothing, void, emptiness, it's over, lights sure. are turned off. Heaven, paradise, 
Eden restored the bosom of Abraham, whatever you want to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but your experience has been liminal spaces. You're not here or there, but you're somewhere. Yeah, is it okay to say yes and no? No, exactly. That's what I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes, I believe it is. And if, in fact, I think that's where death dwells. Uh, if we try to put death into uh, categories, we're going to fail to grasp it. Uh, the, the liminal spaces are so uncomfortable at times because we like to... Uh, we like to think that something is dead and it's dead or something is alive and it's uh, or it's alive. But there's times, and I would say that for most of us who are experiencing grief or bereavement, it's both where the, the deceased is still alive in some capacity, whether it's how we explain it, you know, I can talk about uh, you know, how our neurology or, or we, we start to reflect those that we love and, and love kind of creates its own neural circuits and, and the people that we show love towards, uh, maybe that's a part of it. Maybe there is a soul. I don't know, but I, I do know that it's, it's, a, it's a yes and a no. It's an absent and a present. It's a here and a there. It's an apart and together. And it's, it's, it's a sadness. It's an incredible grief that seemingly has no bottom. But it's also an incredible joy as we walk through the end stage. And those things, they have to exist in the tension. Because I, I, I think that's the only way that we can we can begin to find space for our dead is in those is in that liminality in the threshold okay you you tell this story about two young kids die you're taking care you're doing what you do the police officer comes to the funeral home um the fam there's threats among the family members the police and you are going over what happens if the funeral becomes violent. Um, you're going over the funeral procession route and you collapse. Yes. Then you tell us, so you're taken in the midst of planning this funeral for these two young kids with a contentious family that might get violent at the kid's funeral. You're taken to the hospital and you take us into... Uh, what it is like to handle death every to be around death every day and how it sort of overwhelms you and you collapse mm. and then you begin wondering do I even want to do this yeah and then I don't want to give the whole book I kind of do want to give the whole book away because people <laughs> <laughs> um, you you realize and then you tell us that you had a death negative narrative and you needed to change to a death positive narrative yeah um so, for multiple reasons, the West is bad with death. Um, there's an evangelical trifecta of death denial that I've inherited. There's the American bravado of, of the I youth cult. I can do anything. Cult. Yeah. We'll live forever. Yeah. Um, and so, death is the uh, iconoclast. And we have put it in 
those binaries, we put an either or of bad or good, and we've said bad. So what I began to discover, and the only way that I was able to stay in the business, the only reason I'm still here, uh, is because it's also good. It is the most difficult experience any of us will ever have, losing the people that we love. But there's also something beautiful uh, that surrounds death. And so finding those spaces... For me, you know, um, William James talks about um, the uh, twice born. Um, twice born. Twice born, yes. Uh, as opposed to the once born. And he, for him, uh, from what I understand, he struggled with a lot of depression, a lot of darkness that was inspired by real things, inspired by uh, realities that he saw. And I think that we come there first, where we confront the narrative that the world is incredibly difficult and uh, death and tragedy in Houston and Puerto Rico and here, there, and everywhere. Uh, when we take that into ourselves and we see that, sometimes it, can, it seems entirely dark. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the twice born is when we start to, when we acknowledge that and embrace that and give it space. And then we also keep living and mm -hmm. we keep uh, looking for the sparks. You write, I tremble to say there's good in death, that there's a death positive narrative because I've looked in the eyes of the grieving mother and I've seen the heartbreak of the stricken widow, but I've also seen something more in death, something good. Death's hands aren't all bony and cold. Come on, that's good writing. Come on. That's, you, you, you go on to say, we've heard an incomplete narrative. Death is like mud. It's dirty, messy, and incredibly tough to walk through, but surprisingly... It holds vital ingredients to life, and when seeds are planted, it can help sprout new life. Yeah. Yeah. So death has to be both. It, it has to be the, the in-between. It has to sit on that threshold of good and bad, of, of beautiful and ugly. And, uh, yeah, that's... that's that's what I've, that's what has sustained me in being able to see the things that we see. And maybe I'm odd because there's a lot of funeral directors who are able to cope. And maybe I'm a little bit too sensitive, which is very much possible. Uh, but the only way that I've been able to uh, walk the path and walk the journey is to acknowledge that I can be both broken and whole in the spaces of life and death. Did you, so when you've been around death all day and you get in your car, you like cars, we picked that up here. <laughs> I do, yeah, I do. What kind of car are you driving right now? Oh God, I have a 2005, oh right, to, to, well, yes, oh, at home. Cars. Yeah. 
at home, I have a 2005 uh, Mercedes E55 AMG. So, <laughs> <laughs> is it black? No, no, it's it's gray, and it, it's equipped with a subwoofer. I, I say <laughs> a subwoofer is cheap yoga. You know, the bass kind of centers you <laughs> and uh, helps you breathe. Um, so yeah, it, it, I jump in that on my way home, and I, I uh, let the bass uh, minister. Okay. <laughs> What kind of music do you like? Anything. I, I, I'll go the whole gamut. Um, but I'm, uh, I do listen to a lot of pop. Okay. So you've, I mean, you tell here about removing infants from car carriers. I mean, you, the, from baby seats. You, let's say you've spent a day, you call it like doing a removal call, and then you get in your gray Mercedes <laughs> and you drive home. Yeah. Is there anything you do so that when you get home to your wife and kid, you know what I mean? Do you do, they have a checklist, a mantra, a practice, a routine? No. Like if I, I would observe family dinner, are you like, hey, this pasta's good? Or, or are you low? Or, or do you, how do you do all that? Yeah, I'm, I'm maturing in that area. When I first started out, I was awful. Uh, bringing stuff back home, uh, and I've I'm slowly maturing. I think it has to do with just my own capacity increasing, of being able to experience intense joys and intense sorrows moments apart. You know, before I carried a lot, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> there's almost a, a forgiveness of circumstances where you walk into a, a horrible circumstance, and it's almost the same practice of being able to walk away and then let that go. Yeah. Um, and so I'm learning. I, I, it's still tough. And my wife will tell you, I, I come home sometimes and her words, not mine. I'm an asshole. And I totally agree with her. <laughs> I, I am. Um, and, uh, but I, I'm also learning to be able to uh, switch uh, from the one to the other as I grow in my own capacity to to uh, let go of the one into the next. Um, in a previous life, when I was doing lots of funerals as a pastor and hospital visits and holding people's hands who were dying, yeah, I would be I would be at the funeral home at the hospital. Then I would go home for dinner with my family, and I would feel guilty enjoying them and being surrounded by all this life and vitality. Almost like I, would, I was disrespecting the suffering that I had just been in the midst of. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. Like, what kind of person are you that you can't, that you could just walk away from that? But then it began, it's interesting, that's why you're, you're moved from death negative to death positive. And I began, but then as I began to grow up, it was like, oh no, this is how I respect that. Yeah. Is I'm going to enjoy tonight. I'm going to hold my kids and my wife extra mm. tight. Mm. I'm going to enjoy this meal like it's the last meal on earth. Yeah. It like flipped and all that death in this, it became incredibly inspiring. Like we all could be gone tomorrow. Mm. So we better enjoy today. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that in your book. It's like, it's like dripping off the pages. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I and that's why I think that it's time for us to 
find a way to open the floodgates of our love for somebody even after death. Uh, because the more that we embrace our mortality, it does a lot of things for us. Uh, but it, one of the things that it really does, uh, it, it centers us and gives us a focus about what's important. Um, and uh, we, you know, love isn't like math, right? I mean, two <laughs> plus two is four, and we all know that, and it's easy. Uh, but we know that love is simple. You know, we give of ourselves, and uh, this reciprocal thing happens, and it's just beautiful and messy. And um, uh, but we continuously have to be reminded of it. It's not like it's not like two plus two, where you know it, and then that's it. We it's, just know it's it in forever. Your, you just you carry sh- it around with you, known. Right. Yeah. My son's five, and he's like, you know. Dad, 10 plus 10 is 20. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's great. And it's, it's a huge revelation for him. And, but he doesn't forget once he knows it's 10 plus 10 is 20, that, that's it. But yeah, we, it's a continual reminder of, of the value of things. You know, we, we seem to be able to understand the values within numbers. Uh, but love's different. And uh, that's a value that needs continuous reminders and I feel like the closer that we grow to our own mortality and understanding that we're finite, we're not gods, which we'd like to believe or even in our attempt to worship God, uh, we don't even come close. Uh, Resting in the fact that we'll die and that our loved ones will die is that value reminder. Because... I keep telling my wife I love her, and she doesn't at some point say, yeah, I know, you told me like three years ago. We're good. Right, right. So she knows two plus two is four, obviously, but she also knows I love her, but I keep telling her because somehow it's just different. Yeah. So um, I have a couple, I have specific things from the book that I was like, I have to have more, I have to hear more. So can I just knock down a few things here? Go for it, yeah. Yeah. there's one section where you tell about these lovely little old ladies who talk to you at funerals. (laughs) And you tell about a couple of women who pulled you close at a funeral and whispered to you, remember to shave my facial hair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then you say, I'd smile and let them pinch my abnormally chubby cheeks while I thought to myself, I don't want to spend my life shaving the facial hair of lovely little elderly ladies from Parksburg, but I wanted to do something big. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love it. So you tell about, you're like, there's no way I'm going to do the funeral business. I'm out of here. You're fifth, sixth? Sixth. Gen- but yeah. on your mom's side, you're... I would have been fifth. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a thoroughbred, both sides. Uh, funeral director <laughs> thoroughbred. Yeah. Bread. So both families were in the funeral business. You get into this and are like, I'm out of here. You go try some other stuff, but then you come back. Yeah. Do you see yourself doing this from here on out? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I've, I've become a part of the dirt in Parksburg, you know, just a, a part of the... Uh, a part of the ground, a part of the town, and uh, it's going to be. I, I, you know, I often, I often have the 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 crisis of, well, I don't think I can keep going on, but 
You do, but, to this day. Yeah, yeah, I do. Even with a death positive narrative. Yeah, there's uh, the funeral industry is is tough. There's not much support for us uh, on top of it. You know, a lot of a lot of caregiving groups, uh, whether it be hospice nurses or EMTs or first responders, there's material for them, um, but there's nothing for funeral directors. Um, and so, there's no groups. I'd love to be in a group with other funeral directors where we could like not only swap the stories but also share this is what happened this is what it did to me and i just need to tell somebody because the stories that you get in the funeral industry are probably like you know what an er doctor sees you don't bring it home and talk about it at the table over steak and potatoes Uh, (laughs) so you kind of need uh somebody else to bounce it off of that understands and the funeral industry is uh, so there's uh, swung and miss on that there's no group for funeral directors there's, there's no place where funeral directors go and are like oh good me too I'm not crazy <laughs> exactly that yeah. does, seems like that exists for every profession yeah yeah okay um, so, so we got that for you to do here's what I think would be interesting not that you asked because mm. you're like a really good writer I'm sure you've heard that a lot well, thank you. You're a very, very good writer. Very gifted. Um, but I also can tell you work very hard at it. I think the liminal space and what happens in the threshold where they're not alive but not dead, mm-hmm. I think you going around and interviewing funeral directors about things they've actually seen. Yeah. Cause a lot of times there's like, the book is like, how to prove there's life after death. <laughs> right. Which yeah. it's, it becomes a defense, it becomes a proof. It's like a court trial. Uh-huh. We're going to prove to you that something happens after you die. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but to me, what's much more compelling is just stories. Yeah. I don't have an agenda. I'm just telling you what the lady, what happened. Yeah. I'm just yeah. telling you what they told me. I'm just telling you what I saw. That is interesting. Yeah. I would read that book in a heartbeat. Um, because anybody who's like, well, that's kind of a little woo woo. You know what I mean? Like, that's a little out it there. It is. It's uncomfortable. Like, well, we're funeral directors. We're just telling you what happened. Yeah. You can, you can read into it. You can interpret it mm. however you want. You can keep your belief system firmly intact. But I was there, and this is what happened. Yeah. So to any prospective uh, people who are dying out there listening, <laughs> which is absolutely horrible, I'll hear your story. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, think, I think funeral directors, just from your book, I was like, wait, I bet there's a massive body of funeral director Wisdom and craziness. Yeah. That it would be really, really interesting. Actual yeah. stuff you've seen. Yeah, there's a lot of craziness. Uh, grief, grief can make you rise to the, the, uh, the very peak of your humanity, and it can also bring you to the very lowest of it. Uh, so there's those crazy stories. Uh, but yes, the, the stories of the, the liminal spaces... Um, I, yeah, I would, I would venture to say that probably one-fourth of the families that we uh, serve have something that they could say about that. Uh, again, you know, whether or not whatever, yeah. if, if it is real or chemically induced or a projection of their hopes or what have you, but they have them. What, 25% you would guess? I would guess, yeah. Have some story... 
assuming that they've been there during the dying process. Now, a lot of people die alone in a nursing home or some story in which the standard binary categories dead and alive simply don't work. Right. Like the closer that they come to their death, the more that they exist in this space of uh, seeing things that um, obviously we don't want to see or we don't see now, uh, which for them is often dead relatives. That's the number one thing. I would say, yeah. Some acknowledgement of people who have gone before them. Yeah, simple statements that we'll get from the family where they'll say, you know, close to the end, mom kept saying that she saw dad. And, and that's where they leave it, you know, because there's really not much more to say. Yeah, right. And they'll recount those things to us. Oh, somebody somebody just recently, a guy never went to church, or, and the pastor came in, which is rare. Pastors usually don't come in to make arrangements, but he came in and, and he met with us and the family. And one of the daughters came back to the back room. I was helping her write at the obituary. We were in front of the computer, and she says, you know, at dad's end, he felt like he saw God and he was talking about it up until the point that he died. And she said he was never in church uh, and This isn't the, how he would have normally talked. Right. And he didn't have some practice that would have handed him a bunch of language or images or something. Right, right, right. And so she's saying, do you think I should tell the pastor that dad found something towards the end and I'm like oh my gosh yes you know I I uh, <laughs> of course you know tell this to the pastor uh, and uh, I don't know what happened because I was actually off work the weekend that the, the service happened but but yeah that was just uh, maybe a couple weeks ago a month ago okay that leads to another question I had there's one instance where you tell you're in the back as the funeral director and there's a pastor up front giving a funeral sermon and you're like this sermon is crap yeah you're you give us like oh your perspective on the sermon and it's i almost feel like you're like moments from just stopping the sermon yeah and being like this guy this is Bullshit, this guy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't listen to this guy. He's an idiot. Oh, it, it, it's such great opportunities at times that are missed. And they are. Um, because you've got people in this tender space. Yeah. Uh, there's been a death. We're grieving, but our hearts are also soft and open. Yeah. And then it's interesting how you recount the preacher charges in with these... Uh, like rough-edged certainties mm-hmm. yeah. that just skip right over the human experience. And like the one drug addict who dies, yeah. and the pastor's like shaming people for doing drugs. Right. All the, per- the, the kid who died, all of his friends, the pastor's like uses the sermon to be you shouldn't do drugs. Yeah, yeah. Which their friend is dead from drugs, so it's probably, that's a fairly, if that's not going to work, you know what I mean? Yeah. How often, <laughs> that's probably not the right question, how often are you just like, oh my goodness, we got to shut this, we got to shut this mic off. Yeah, a, a lot. Um, You've probably also heard some stunningly beautiful stuff. Yeah, uh, which is more rare. Uh, you know, is it really? 
Yeah, I think, so here's, here's my theory. Uh, I think that our idea of God, especially in the Christian community, is somebody who is on feeling and on emotional. And so when we strive to be like that God and we're around grief, oh. uh, we just, we try to be immortal in the midst of, of mortality. Uh, so we try to be immortal in the midst of mortality. Yeah. See, there's like a funeral director slash poet. <laughs> That's real. I never thought about that. Yeah. So, and we, we see that a lot. Instead of somebody walking into the emotion of it, you know, that, that specific story was this, you know, kid just uh, came at the very last minute and wept over the body of his deceased friend who had overdosed. And it brought the whole room into uh, this tender space. And it was worship, you know. Mm. It, it, it was, he brought the whole chapel to worship because here we are. But not our, a triumphant, victorious, we're going to win worship. Right. Another kind of awe right. that you describe. Right. And it's harder to... Well, we don't, we don't have the songs for it or the hymns for it. But it's, right. It, it's like a wonder and awe in the emptiness, not the presence. Yes. Or the brokenness, not the triumph. Or the. Yeah. So everybody was in this state of uh, just being moved to the depths. And then the preacher got up there and is like, you know, well... God stands strong above this all and et cetera, et cetera. Just blew, blew it, you know. Uh, because nobody right then needs images, metaphors of strength. Right, yeah. Yeah, weakness. It's uh, like not tone deaf, it's like metaphor deaf yeah. or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like everybody in this moment is experiencing some sort of presence in the absence that is sweet and tender and vulnerable we don't need images of battleships and rocks and boulders and steel <laughs> machines or you know what i mean yeah 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 oh, that's so interesting yeah okay you um and okay, you can i cut you off too just real quick oh please I, do uh, so i think that grief is worship and i i think that and why i i say that is because I think we need, it, it takes the shame out of it. Um, so, so many people, they just, oh, why am I not at closure yet? Why haven't I processed through this linear grief work and I should be done by now? But I think grief, grief is a form of worship. And I, uh, and I just put that in there before we move on. What, say more about that. Because you talk about this, you talk about people saying, so-and-so has been dead such and such months or years, I should now have closure and be on with it. And you have very strong words against that kind of thinking. Yes. Where you're like, no, you, you, no, you're, yeah. it's not a race for closure and there's nothing wrong with you. I was thinking no. about all the people listening to this who've lost something or someone. Yes. And something within them is like, I should, I should be able to see that color or hear that song or walk by their bedroom and be fine. Yeah. And you're like, no, mm -hmm. do not do that to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, closure is a myth, and you know, I, it doesn't happen the way that we want it to happen. It, 
it's messy and the person who has died again one of the liminal spaces is always there as long as you love somebody who's dead you will be grieving to some extent uh and that's okay it's okay it's okay for you to be grieving years and years later it's okay if you're uh had a joyful place and you break down in tears because you wish your loved one was there it's okay it's okay when we're at, at a religious meeting or or church and we're just swept up into the memories of our heritage or a grandmother who prayed for us and we break down in tears that's okay and i think we need to be given that space to not only say it's not just okay but you're probably becoming more like god when you do that if god exists if we are anything like him or her it uh, the more that we move into those things the closer we get you know what you said it just evoked a memory for me and then you said a grandmother prayed for us and i was like oh my word i um my grandma and I were very tight, my father's side grandmother, and she lived out in the country. And I don't know if we knew each other in a past life. I mean, I don't know where the bonding, but we were just always tight. There was a decade in my 20s when we had lunch every Friday together. So, like, we were just... Yeah. But when I was in high school, I would drive out in my Oldsmobile Delta 88, silver with mud flaps. I would drive out to her place and it was field on all four sides barns it was a farm barns on three sides but then fields in every direction I would drive out to see her and she would always feed me and then we would sit on her porch and it was quiet except every once in a while a car going like a hundred would go, go down because there's these long country roads otherwise we would just sit on the, her porch and even in hot summer nights there was breeze because it was all open and sometimes we would just sit in silence. And then every once in a while, she'd just say out of nowhere, she'd say, you know, I pray for you every day. And I'd look over and I'd say, I know. And then we'd sit in silence for another 10 minutes. Um, but I look back on it now and high school, you're all over the place. You're a mess. Yeah. You're trying to figure out who you are and you're beginning to separate from your parents because you want to be your own person and there's all these forces coming at you that are like, this is how to be a person. This is what a man. And I would go out with her and you'd just sit there. And it was like this meditative <laughs> quiet. Sometimes we talk, sometimes not. Mm. Um, and to this day, I think about her, I swear, every day. Mm. Like I miss her. But, and I was like, well, she's gone. You know, maybe someday, who knows. But you, you and this, like I sort of go back to that porch at some level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And keeping that alive, something within me, some modern thing within me is like, yeah, it's just put, done, move on. Yeah. And not, that's fine to keep that alive. Yeah. It's fine for that just to float yeah. somewhere in your heart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, tradition is the voice of the dead, and uh, we don't. Ha we do, the dead don't have many spaces anymore in our lives. Uh, I, it's me too, you know. And the pursuit of our 
individual individuality, pursuit of our our dreams, uh, we oftentimes overlook and quiet the voices that still speak. And uh, I think the those voices need space, uh, and it it does us well especially when we're so caught up in individuality and uh, seeing how many likes our last Instagram or hearts our last Instagram post. You know, we're, we're just pushing and pushing and pushing and uh, to think that there's a, a, a bigger part to bring the dead back into the space, to bring our dead back into our space centers us, I think. And it, it helps us to embrace the moment a little bit more and not worry about the smaller things uh, because we see ourselves not as the story but as a small part of a larger one. And we each have those somewhere, those traditions that have been passed down, those larger stories. And uh, to, to find them and to place ourselves within them uh, does well for our souls. Yeah. I love what you just said. The tradition, tradition is the voices of the dead. Because a lot of people, tradition is a force pulling things backwards. Yes. But then when I think about the people who came before me, these were not people who were like, just do it like we've always done. These are people who, if they're saying anything, are like, go, yeah. push it, yeah. Yeah. leap, risk, yeah. go forward. A tradition becomes this living, active, the dead who came before you, cheering you on, mm. like pushing you forward. Like, whatever you do, don't settle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, oh, you, you write, another reason we are so drawn to this idea of closure is that we like stories that we can control. We like to believe that the lion is tame, that love is never messy, and that death is something we can eventually box up and manage. We like assigning stages to our grief so that it feels more linear, more certain. And we love the idea of timetables so we can predict how long our grief should last. And we can advise our friends, you shouldn't still be grieving five or ten years later. We want to take all the mystery out of grief. Good Lord, I don't know where to stop reading from you. This is so good. Yes, there's an element of control. You can just agree with what you said there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, a couple... um, I have to look... Okay. I want to talk about the family who had the... um, I'm trying to find the page here where you go over to their house. The daughter has passed and at the, at her table in the, ca- yes. the kitchen table yes. um, yeah. where she would have had her plate with her food. They have like a stack of her possessions. Mm. Yeah. She had uh, down syndrome and forgive me if I'm saying that wrong. Uh, you know, I, I know that there's, lingo surrounding that that I'm not entirely up on. Yes. Uh, but So she lived with her parents and a beautiful soul. Uh, the funeral was it was a little window into heaven. Uh, the uh, Everybody that came was just such so generous and I felt at home. 
I felt welcomed in a stranger's funeral. But they set up a, uh, an area at the table, like you said, and it, it, when I first saw it, it just struck me wrong, like pathological. Like, this isn't right. She's, she's dead, you know. That, that's kind of weird. Leave that space. like or superstitious or yeah, yeah, like, voodoo or whatever. Yeah. This is third world. We're America. We've gotten past that. Uh, it's time for us to let go of the past and move forward. And uh, it was it was a shrine, and uh, it took me months of rolling that around in my head, of just chewing on it, to finally come to a place where it was right. It was what I call active remem- remembering. It was uh, choosing to not forget. Not just passively, where we might be struck by a scent and we remember our dad, mm-hmm. but actively remembering. And uh, I, I think that the, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Because the dead are still with us in some capacity. There's still love. We still have those strings attached that were, that were cut to some, but some are still there. So why not just acknowledge it? Why not just acknowledge the fact that our dead are still a part of us and do something active by setting up a shrine or by talking about the deceased at a holiday dinner, bringing up grandpa, saying his name, whatever it is, mine's Bud or Carl, who I have lost, and talking about him. Because he's, it's just an acknowledgement of something that's already there. Uh, and I, th- I just think it's healthier if we would take that step instead of uh, putting them, ostracizing our dead, uh, which I think we're, we've done effectively. We've ostracized them from almost every space in our lives. And uh, yeah, I, I think they deserve a space. Oh, that's so well said. There are sections of your writing. By the way, this is the only book where, like, at one point you describe embalming and you give us the names of the tools you use in embalming. (laughs) But then you also, there's pages of just sheer poetry. Um, Like, you write, page 166, life wants to break through. It wants to shine. It finds ways in the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. It breaks through concrete and asphalt. It grows in the womb of bodies that have miscarried, and it can even find its way to couples who can't make their own. Life is resilient and brave, and it doesn't believe in can't and won't and no. In the midst of the no of death, life says yes, and when we find that yes, we can help it breathe, help its embers and swaddle it in our arms. Do you know the band uh, Explosions in the Sky? I don't, no. It's a Texas band. Okay. But go get Explosions in the Sky, their album, their albums are so great, but maybe the earth is not a cold, dead place. (laughs) Nice. And turn that up in your Mercedes with the subwoofer. Yes. I don't know about the subwoofer part, but (laughs) I feel like some of these... Oh, they did the music for a show called Friday Night Lights. Just yeah. very beautiful soaring. Some of these sections, and this is what I love about what of your voice. 
you, you've been around so much death that when you talk to us about life, it's like, cre- it's like earned. It's like credible. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, there's something about it that's, it's so powerful. Do you have another book in you? I hope so. I, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to start a green cemetery uh, because I think that uh, there's a lot of things surrounding that and I won't get into the details, but a green cemetery is essentially a cemetery where there's no embalming. The bodies are just placed in the ground. There's no vault. The casket's biodegradable. And I think that it needs to be an option. For one, it fits I love it. Our, our push for you know, a cleaner world. Environmentally friendly death. Yes, stick your body in the ground and and let the ground take you back. And uh, so that's what I want to... There's a couple. I forget how many, but there's not many in the United States and Canada. Uh, But I want to start one. I'm starting to look at land and trying to find something that uh, we can do that. And I I hope that turns into uh, a story where we can talk about those things. Uh, in in a book, so I love it. You're very interesting because you mentioned being an introvert in this book, um, and so you're this beautiful introvert, but you have like ambition. But it's like this really sanctified ambition. I love it. Like you're really here to do something interesting. It's so inspiring to me. It's so inspiring. Now, it, um, all the funeral directors out there who want to start a funeral director group, hmm. um, well, how do they find you? Um, I, <laughs> yes. How can most they of them down? already know me. <laughs> <laughs> and some, uh, a, a portion uh, don't like me. A portion do. Uh, but yes. What, uh, you're controversial in the funeral director world? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Oh, I can't imagine being controversial. Uh, just this morning, I got some hate comments. Well, not that bad. You know, I'm sensitive. So they, they were just, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know. No, I don't. It, uh, not, I can think I can speak for all my listeners. We don't know what funeral director, what heat a funeral director would take. <laughs> so in the funeral industry, embalming is the sacred cow. Oh, and cremation. Or green burial. Cremation and green burial burial are bad. Are are are. They are not the sacred cow. The sacred it, cow is embalming. It, it's the engine of the industry. Uh, so you start to profit. You start to question it, uh, which there's other people aside from myself, including myself, who have, and uh, you you draw. You're questioning people's livelihood. So I understand uh, why they're why they'd be distraught about that. But uh, at the same time, we need to be community-oriented undertakers and not industry-oriented. And that's a distinction that not many make. I'm listening to what the people that I serve need. And for many of them, that's something less expensive. And it's something that's more uh, ecological. And uh, that means that embalming comes into question. And I'm fine with that. Let it be questioned and, and let people decide against it and let them decide for something that suits them and their sensibilities. So when I bring those questions in a public forum and other funeral directors read it, it draws their ire. And 
Uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. That in every area, including death, there is uh, a way things are done. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the new thing. There's the gatekeepers. That is asking questions, is wondering what the future looks like, mm -hmm. and then you have the clash therein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even in the world of funeral directors. Mm. I have. Um, I hope. My, I hope people who listen to this. I hope people get this book. Because uh, I can only imagine the people who've lost some someone. But and the amount of insights you give us. But then, just the the power surging through this, of of the of the holy sacred nature of life itself. You've given us this tremendous gift. I'm I'm really grateful. Thank you. I will look for more books. I will look to hear about the association. I will look for the liminal space threshold mm. interview book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. And where can people get a hold of you? Can they follow you on stuff? Are you out there somewhere? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, Caleb Wild, Facebook, Confessions of a Funeral Director, and then my blog under my name. And the blog is Caleb Wild with an E? With an E, like Oscar. Okay. Mm. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming to the back house on a very hot day. Yes. Thank you, Rob.